Anyways, let's begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today, as we always do and always should do. Help us to open our minds and our hearts, even to some of the smaller segments of uh, Scripture that we will be talking about today, because each one of them has a message. So we ask that you help us to discover that message and understand it and hopefully live by it. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. Today we're going to cover a number of uh, little incidents that may appear on the surface to be not very interesting or important, but every every part of Scripture has something to give you. Uh, I had somebody call me the other day, and they were concerned about the story of Cain and Abel in the book of Genesis. And they said, well, how could God do all that punishing of Abel just because he killed Cain? <laughs> well, I think you have already mentioned what he did and why. But there are other uh, smaller incidents. Uh, let me give you, uh, let me see, there was another one. Well, the, the one that I like to talk about is, why did God uh, expel Adam and Eve out of the, the beautiful Garden of Eden just for eating an apple? Well, no, it wasn't just for eating an apple. And, of course, we don't even know whether it was an apple or a pear or orange or whatever it was. Uh, scripture doesn't say. There's always a message behind each one of these and you have to sort of overlook some of the details that wouldn't apply today to what is the message, because the message will be there. All right, The message is always what you should be looking at, not in the details. Uh, and that is, of course, what we're going to be trying to cover today. But the essence of all of these, if you put them together, what is the message in all of these little, uh, what I call vignettes, uh, little small stories, sort of in between the more important things. And that is really what the author Luke is trying to do here, is to show us how the uh, Holy Spirit has worked throughout uh, the early stages of the church, and it is the Holy Spirit's work that is really very important. Something that we probably don't give enough attention to today. Uh, and that's understandable. Uh, Jesus Christ is the more visible and understandable figure of, of the Trinity. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit that is behind most of that and even behind what Jesus did. Uh, now, of course, there's only one God, so whatever the Holy Spirit does uh, is in conjunction with the Father and the Son, and that is true for all three of the figures of the Holy Spirit. But 
Let's go through and see how the Holy Spirit is working in each one of these things. The other uh, point that is being made here is how the scriptures of the Old Testament are fulfilled within the New Testament. If you were to uh, try to change the name of the Bible or what we often call the Old Testament, Old Testament and the New Testament, what would you change them to? I remember standing in line at a grocery store one day and there were two women behind me uh, at the checkout counter and one was saying, well, I wonder why they called it the Old Testament. And the other woman said, well, because it's old. <laughs> I thought, oh, my. <laughs> they, they really missed the point altogether. Yeah. But if you were to change the title uh, that is generally used for the Old Testament, you would come up with something along the lines of the book of the promise. Because it is the promise of a redeemer that begins all the way back at the time of Adam and Eve and the serpent and all of that, and extends all the way through Old Testament history and Old Testament times. The promise of a redeemer. And then the New Testament would be changed to the fulfillment of those promises. And that is what the stories that we're going to be uh, reviewing today will try to cover. How the <clears throat> writings, the promises, the predictions, uh, the prophecies of the Old Testament are now fulfilled, are being fulfilled, uh, in the early part of the New Testament. Just the straight sacred scriptures. Yeah. They didn't have a name like we do. And even today, they kind of avoid uh, using the term Old Testament because to them it's the only testament. See? And so Old Testament wouldn't quite fit. Yeah. All right. Okay. Any questions before we begin? All right. If you'll turn to, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn to chapter 4. Uh, no, verse 23 is what we're uh, going to be talking about, where it says, uh, at least in, in this one, it's got the caption of the prayer of the community. It says, after their release, that would be Paul and, and uh, John and Paul, no, Peter and John and Peter, uh, were released. They went back to their own people and reported what the chief priests and elders had told them. And when they heard it, they raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Sovereign Lord, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, you said by the Holy Spirit 
through the mouth of our father David, your servant, quote unquote. Now, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples entertain folly and the kings of the earth took their stand and the princes gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed? That what they're doing there is quoting Psalm 2. And I want to just kind of read the same words practically uh, out of Psalm 2. Remember, I think I've said many times that the Jewish people, even though most of them were not educated uh, and few of them could read and write, not because they were not capable, they just never had the opportunity. But they knew the scriptures. They knew them from memory. It was a very important part of their culture to understand the scriptures, at least understand the words and what was being said, and understand by numbers the Psalms. Psalm 22 why do the nations protest and the peoples grumble in vain? Kings on earth rise up and princes uh, plot against each other. Uh, let us break their shackles and so forth and so on. Anyways, it's the same wording that is here in the Acts. And what is it they are trying to say? Uh, what is it they're trying to say that was done uh, or was part of the scriptures for the Old Testament back in the writings of, of this psalm? The one bad feature with the psalm is we have no idea of when they were written. So if we had some idea of when they were written, it would be much easier to understand what they meant to the people of that time. You see, all of the Psalms, the prophets, prophecies and predictions, even though they related to something in the New Testament, they had to have had some meaning to the people of the Old Testament, uh, or Old Testament time period, or they would have been just words that nobody understood. So there had to be a meaning for both groups of people. Yeah. What this one is really saying here is that the Gentiles were, as you know, anyone that was not a Jew. Um, I've lost my page here, but that's not unusual. Why did the Gentiles rage? All right. It is because they were being uh, looked upon as now this is Old Testament time period, right? The Gentiles were looked upon as infidels that were totally against the Jewish people. Uh, the kings of the earth, well, the kings, the kings way back was David, Solomon, etc., and the princes were the temple rulers. Why did they rage? against the Lord and against his anointed. Well, against the Lord because he wasn't fulfilling the promises, at least in 
their way of thinking and in their time period. And then they go on to expect that there should be a lot of punishment made. But when we get into the New Testament, it's a little different. They're taking the same wording, they're talking about the same people, but then they say, Indeed, they gathered in the city against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Herod, another king, and Pontius Pilate, one of the rulers or princes of the Roman Empire, okay. um, together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do... Uh, what your hand and your will had long ago planned to take place. In other words, punishment. But Jesus is saying something different. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with all boldness, to speak your word with... Uh, I'm losing my place here. Part of the problem of reading things is that I know ahead of time what I'm going to be reading and then uh, I get sometimes tripped up in my own uh, thinking here. But Jesus changes the whole idea and says why don't we try to get them to understand rather than just going in and wiping them out or punishing them with severity. That's not what he's after. He's after a way of changing the thinking of the people. And like any other uh, method of treating a sore or a problem, a crisis or whatever, it takes time to work. God is saying, be patient part of the whole idea of salvation is patience. And we have to be concerned about all of that. It's, it's a minor story in a way, but it shows the transition of thinking from one of these harsh, you know, do and don't, uh, or you go to hell or damnation or whether, whatever it is, uh, the Jewish people had a sort of savage mentality in the early days. And I think it was because most of the people in the culture before Christ was either protect yourself or fight or get lost in the crowd, or get punished, or get taken over, or be uh, conquered, whatever. So this fight, battle, protection, constantly is going on. And Jesus is trying to change that. It's a minor story, but yet I think it has a good message. Any problems? Let's go on to something a little nicer.
the whole idea of uh, Matthias being uh, appointed uh, in to take the place of Judas. This goes back into chapter 1, uh, verse 15, but there's something that is now uh, more appropriate to discuss. Uh, again, Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Uh, during those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the brothers. There was a group of about 120 persons in one place. He said, my brothers, the scripture uh, had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who was the guide for those who arrested Jesus. Remember, Jesus uh, in the agony in the garden the night before he was crucified. It was Judas who led uh, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, uh, to meet you, Jesus, and the signal was that he would uh, kiss Jesus as identifying the one to be captured by the Roman soldiers. <clears throat> My brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand through the mouth of David concerning Judas who was the guide for those who arrested Jesus. Now just there is words that people will kind of skip over, but did you get the point? The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand, that is, in Old Testament times, okay, through the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who was the guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was numbered among us, that is, he was numbered among the twelve apostles and was allotted a share in their ministry. He brought a, he bought a parcel of land with the wages of his iniquity and falling headlong, he burst into the midst of all that his insights filled up. This became known to everyone who lived in Jerusalem. So that parcel of land was called in their language, Ekadel, uh, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his encampment become desolate and may no one dwell in it. And to this day, that parcel of land still remains sort of unoccupied. Okay. Hmm? Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Now, you, Julie just asked an important question, really. Is that parcel really the same one that Judas bought? Well, for any of you who have been to Jerusalem, 
you have to remember that Jerusalem has been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt many, many times. And in earlier days, they didn't clear everything away real nice and start over on fresh lawn or grass or, you know, soil. They just built on top of what was there. And that's evident because of the um, researching and so forth that has been done. But there is a plot of land that is designated there as the uh, one that Judas bought. Yeah. Anyways, the whole idea here is therefore it is necessary that one of the men who accompanied us the whole time that Jesus came and went among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day in which he was taken up from us. Uh, and that person to become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they proposed Joseph called Barsabbas. Barsabbas. Now, the word bar in the front of any word or name means son of. Okay? Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and then Matthias. They prayed. Oh, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two have been chosen to take the place of this apostle uh, apostolic ministry from which Judas turned away to go to his own place. And then they gave them lots to them, and the lot fell upon Matthias. And he was counted with the eleven apostles. So this became... You know, this might seem very insignificant, but it became the way, and it still is really the basic way that bishops are chosen. Bishops are not chosen just because he's a good friend of the existing existing bishop. Uh, they are chosen by lot, usually uh a lot is a little more uh, sophisticated today, you might say, but in most cases, they are chosen uh, after a group of people have uh, examined the qualifications of the individual. But did you notice in there the readings of the Holy Spirit are involved? Okay. Let's go on to the strange story of uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira. Uh, five verses one through eleven. A man named, well, before, back up here. The community of believers was of one heart and one mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles bore witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great favor was accorded them. There was no needy person among them. For those who own property or houses would sell them 
bring the proceeds of the sale and put them at the feet of the apostles. And they were distributed to each according to his needs. Thus Joseph, also named uh, by the uh, apostles Barnabas, Bar-Nabas, okay, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite, a Cypriot by birth, sold a piece of property that he owned, and then brought the money and put it at the feet of the apostles. But a man named Ananias, however, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. He retained for himself, with his wife's knowledge, some of the purchase price uh, and took the remainder and put it at the feet of the apostles. Okay, he held a little bit back of his own, for his own. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart so that you lied to the Holy Spirit and retained part of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain yours? And when it was sold, was it not still under your control? Why did you contrive this deed? You have lied not to human beings, but to God. You get the point here. What Peter is really saying is, you didn't have to do all of this. You didn't have to put the money, uh, all of it, at the feet of the apostles for the use of everything. No one was requiring that, but that was the custom. That's what people were doing. And Ananias and his wife made it appear that they were putting all of the proceeds of this sale uh, at the disposal of the apostles, but they didn't. They kept a little bit uh, behind. While you have lied not to human beings, but to God, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped him up, and then carried him out and buried him. Right. (laughs) Quick, done, and gone. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, unaware of what had happened. Peter said to her, Tell me, did you sell the land for this amount? (laughs) She answered, yes, for that amount. And then Peter said, why did you agree to test to the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the footsteps of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. At once she fell down at feet and breathed her last. When the young men entered, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Well, yes, I can imagine. The point here is don't take God for granted. 
if it is supposed to be all, that's what it means, all. But don't hide something in behind, you know. Again, it's like the Adam and Eve story. Why did Adam and Eve get tossed out of uh, the beautiful Garden of Eden? It is because they disobeyed a direct command of God of not eating from the fruit of the certain tree, which was sort of a boundary that was given to them. You have the same kind of thing here. Don't lie to the Holy Spirit or to the church representing the Holy Spirit uh, for the sake of personal gain. A minor thing, but it's important that, and as we go further into this book, you'll see similar examples. So, uh, Lillian? <laughs> that might be a good thing, you know. No, yes, uh, as William pointed out, it might seem extreme, all right? We don't know how, you know, great this, or how accurate, I should say, this, this writing is. Uh, but they're put in here more or less for examples. Mike? Uh, no, I never thought about that, but you're right. Uh, sometimes words are put in there that have meaning, and other times they don't. So in that particular case, I don't really think there's anything specific about that. Yes? That's right, yes. And Christ, in one of the Gospels, goes into quite a bit of detail on that subject alone. Yes, Gail? anything from God. God knows all of the answers. Yes. Yes, Jim? considered the New Testament to be uh, factual. 
And you indicated that, that, that maybe this was a little bit of an exaggeration in the writing or something. And, but my general question is, if we cannot rely then on the, on the gospel for being accurate in all cases? Uh, there are some things within, uh, I won't say yes or no, uh, because uh, there are times when you have to be uh, very careful and uh, overlook the words to find the meaning. The lesson within the story is more important than the details. But sometimes it's a little difficult to find them. Maybe like the Old Testament, they would exaggerate in the New Testament to make their point. Um, to, to a certain degree, yeah. yeah. Yes, Alice? Oh, all right. Well, I'll try to repeat it. I, I should, I know, repeat the question, but I, I kind of forget that at times. Yes? Uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not hearing you clearly. Oh, all right, yes, yes. Uh, she's saying that there is an element of stealing here, in a way, because they kept some of the proceeds behind, even though they told the apostles that this was all the total sale price, and yet they did keep some behind. And so, yes, that's an element uh, of stealing, in, in a way. So, uh, again, you have to take these small stories that appear insignificant on the surface, but there is an element of truth and teaching within each one of them. That's why they're there. Don't look so important at, um, you know, the, the story itself. It's the it's teaching within it. One of the things that I really like to uh, to talk about is did you know that they had fast food in the Old Testament times? You know, like McDonald's uh, where you could order something and in five minutes it, it's ready in front of you. Well, there's a story within uh, the early part of the book of Genesis or about the yeah, earlier part of the book of Genesis where Abraham is in his tent and all of a sudden, he has uh, three men practically standing in front of him of uh, the tent. And he rushes out because in those days, any visitor was welcome to bring news in from the outside. And so he tells his wife, Sarah, to run and kill the fatted calf and bake some bread and bring it to them, you know, so they can have lunch. Yeah, I thought, boy... If you think about, you know, just 
killing the fatted calf, and how much work is involved in that, and then how much time it takes to break bread, and so forth and so on. The poor guys would starve to death, you know, before that time. That's fast food if I ever saw one, you know. But you see, it's the message within the story that's more important than the details. John? Yes, yes, yes. They sinned against not only the Holy Spirit, but the community. There's a point in that in itself, you see. Yeah, yeah. John just said, this, this particular incident is not in any of the... Uh, Church, uh, missilettes, you might say. Yes, go. Now, in the followers here, it's mentioned that they gave false prophets. Were there followers who didn't sell their property? I'm sorry, Bill, I don't. Were there followers here that didn't sell their property? Probably. Probably. It yeah. wasn't a requirement. It was not a requirement. It was something done voluntarily. Yes, because these people were so happy to be enlightened by the Holy Spirit and seeing the value and the benefits of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that they were willing to do this. But many of them probably thought twice about it. You know, I've got to take care of my kids. I've got to have a home to live in, etc., etc. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But don't lie about it if you do it and, you know, you say this is all when it isn't. A minor, minor story, but I think has a very good message within it. Yeah. Yes, uh, Sometimes Edge. you tell one lie, you've got to lie to get out of that lie. <laughs> well, that's true. Lying has a way of kind of feeding on itself in a way and you just dig your hole deeper and deeper. Why lie? God knows about it anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. All right, Let, let's go to uh, another a little bit more uh, appealing story here. Uh, the need for assistance. This is chapter 6. Says at that time, as the number of disciples continued to grow, that is, the people within the whole idea of this new uh, Christian movement. Remember, the church was not separated from Judaism yet. These were people who were maintaining uh, a good relationship within Judaism but we're adding the teachings of Christ to that. That's very important to remember what is going on in, in the community. Uh, so at that time, as the number of disciples continued to grow, the Hellenists, 
complained against the Hebrews because their widows uh, were being neglected in the daily distribution of, of food, etc. Now, let me stop for a moment here. Do you understand who and what Hellenism was? Back in the third or fourth fourth century BC, uh, when the Greeks conquered the, the most of the known world at the time, okay, they, Alexander the Great tried to impose the Greek culture on everybody, all of the conquered peoples, regardless of where they were. And it took very quickly because it was sort of a uh, loose style of living. It was rather promiscuous. Uh, they enjoyed all kinds of things that the Jewish people had previously abstained from. Uh, it had a lot of good points, but it had a lot of uh, negative points as well. People outside of Israel began to absorb the good parts of this Hellenist movement. And it was uh, looked upon by the people of Israel as something that was extremely negative and against their beliefs. But a lot of the Jewish people who lived outside of Israel began to absorb many of the traditions and the customs of the Hellenists. And that wasn't totally wrong. It was uh, acceptable in most cases. Uh, but when the Jewish people who lived outside of Israel came into contact with the people within Israel, there automatically became a clash or tension at least. Okay. So that is part of what is going on here. It appears that the deacons, or, or it appears that the people who were helping the apostles uh, were giving a little bit priority to the Jewish ladies of the... Uh, the Jewish Israelite ladies and ignoring the ladies or the people from uh, the Hellenistic areas. Uh, you, you get the picture here? Uh, that's what they're talking about here. The disciples uh, continue to grow. The Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because uh, their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called together the community of the disciples and said, it is not right for us to neglect the word of God, that is the teachings, to serve at table. So brothers, select from you, um, uh, select from among you seven reputable men filled with the spirit and wisdom whom we shall appoint to this task whereas we shall uh, devote ourselves to, the, to prayer 
and to the ministry of the word. The proposal was accepted uh, to the whole community, and so they chose Stephen, a man filled with faith and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorius, Nicanor, Timor, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. Laid hands on them is important. Kind of lay, uh, underline that. The word of God continued to spread and the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly. Even a large group of priests were becoming, this is Jewish priests now, were becoming obedient to the faith. A couple words here that we should go back and talk about here. First of all, it was, they were chosen by the community. It had to be a mutual agreement here. Uh, The men had to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And many of these names here we know, a few of them uh, don't appear anymore after that. But the idea of within this process, part of the ceremony of naming these people were the laying on of hands. That has become a symbol of the transfer of power from one person to another. That doesn't mean that the person transferring the power loses his power. He is just transferring some of his power onto the next person. That is still part of the ordination ceremony for both deacons and priests. Their laying on of hands is a significant part of the ordination ceremony. It signifies a continuity of the power of the church given to the candidates or those being ordained. So the laying on of hands is very important. Well, the idea, you see, as I've said before, yeah, but you see, the Jewish people who accepted Christianity remain faithful Jewish people. Yes, I know it's a little confusing, uh, but the separation of the Christians from the Jews didn't happen until much later. That's right. Yeah, And in the meantime, those people who accepted Christ only made their Jewish devotion to God more serious. But after a while, particularly after Paul's letters came into existence, where he said you didn't have to do a lot of those things, did there become a wedge, you might say, and then a gradual separation. But you see, that didn't come into existence until either the year 50 or, or later. Yeah. Is that clear for all of you? Uh, clear as mud, right? 
Uh, yes. Catholic? The Catholic? That's an interesting question. Where did the word Catholic come from? Catholic, if you translate it back through from the English to the Latin to through to the Greek, it means universal. And in the early days, uh, the church was referred to the universal church because it was open to everybody in contrast to Judaism, which was an exclusive, closed community. All right. And so the word universal was used uh, to distinguish the fact, or you know, to make emphasis of the fact that Jesus wanted it to be open to everybody, no exceptions. And then, uh, of course, in the translation, the word Catholic came up through the Greek, from the, into the, from the Greek translation of the uh, Septuagint version of the Bible. Now, the Septuagint version is the Greek version versus the Hebrew version, which is almost identical with the exception that the Greek version has six additional books in it that are not in the Hebrew version. And that is the difference between today uh, Catholic Bible and most Protestant Bibles because at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, uh, those people who wanted to do away with a lot of those things that were Catholic went back to the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. Uh, but I've had people say, well, why did the, why did the Catholics remove six books from the Old Testament? Uh, from, yeah, from the Old Testament. He said, well, they didn't. The Old Testament was pretty well written as we have it today by the, uh, the second century B.C., with some very minor exceptions. Okay. Uh, but one, these Hellenists wanted the Greek scripture, I mean the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek. And so they took it upon themselves uh, to translate the Hebrew scriptures, which were all written in Hebrew or Aramaic, into Greek so that they could understand because many of the Jewish people outside of Palestine couldn't read Hebrew. And therefore, they wanted their scriptures, which they wanted to follow, but they wanted them in Greek so they could read and follow them a little more accurately. And in the process, the people that put the Greek version together added six books that were written in Greek much later in time, uh, and that became the Septuagint version. The word Septuagint comes from the number 70, which was the number of people that put, put the Greek version together. And the, the story goes, and this is story, not history, the story goes that there were six 
people from each tribe of Israel, the seven tribes, you know, there were six people from, not true, seven tribes, twelve tribes. Six people from each tribe were, uh, was chosen to do this project of translating the Hebrew version into Greek. And for some reason or other, two of them got left behind, but they completed their process as well. And so the word Septuagint comes from the 70 men that were active in this translation process. Okay. And they did it in seven days or 12 days or something like that. Well, I don't believe that. And I don't think many, I don't think many people would either considering the handwriting of all of that work. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's go on. I don't mind your questions. I sometimes, uh, I am not a book, uh, cyclopedia, so I don't have all of the answers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's go on to the story of Stephen because I think it's, it is quite, quite interesting. Okay. Uh, let's begin at, uh, verse 8, chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, who was one of the deacons that was just, uh, ordained as we talked about here earlier, filled with grace and power was working great wonders and signs among the people. Again, wonders and signs. Signs is being used here uh, in the place of the word miracles. Certain members of the so-called synagogue of freedmen, Syrians and Alexandrians, and people from Cilicia and Asia, came forward and debated with Stephen. These are Jewish people now who are debating what Stephen is talking about and we presume that he was talking about the teachings of Christ. Okay, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Then they instigated some men to say we have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, accosted Stephen, seized him, brought him before the Sanhedrin. They presented false witnesses who testified. This man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. Well, we have heard him claim that this Jesus, the Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All of those who sat in Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Well, let's back up a little bit. For we had heard him claim this Jesus, the Nazarene, will destroy this place. Remember <coughs> at the time just before, I think this is one of the readings that we have on Palm Sunday, 
where Jesus uh, overturns the tables and so forth in the uh, courtyards of the of the temple and is accused, of course, by all kinds of things. And Jesus says, if you I have to stop and think now. If you destroy this place, and he's talking about his own body, when they're thinking temple, he says, if you destroy this place, in three days I will rebuild it. Because he's God. Uh, of course, they take that as if he's talking about the temple itself. Uh, and of course, they exaggerate the story. Uh, then the high priest asked him, is this so? And he replied, my brothers and fathers, listen, the glory of God, or the God of glory, uh, appeared to our father Abraham. Now, he's going to go all the way back in a way, and try to bring forward how Jesus fulfilled some of the prophecies. All right? So keep that in mind. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia, before he settled in Haran, and said to him, Go forth from your land and from your kinsfolk to the land I will show you. So, Abraham went forth in the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, he made him uh, uh, migrate to this land where you now dwell, that is, Jerusalem, or at least Israel. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but he did promise to give it to him and his descendants as a possession, even though he was childless. And God spoke thus, His descendants shall be aliens in a land not their own, where they shall be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. I was talking about the migration that uh, happened in uh, Egypt. All right. Remember, now, this is Stephen going back and talking about Abraham, and he's talking to about Jewish people who are antagonistic, and he's trying to weave the whole Jewish history so that these people can see that Jesus now fulfilled many of those prophecies. And God spoke thus, his descendants shall be aliens in a land they not their own, where they shall be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment upon the nation they serve, upon Egypt. Okay. God said, and after that, they will come out and worship me in this place, Israel. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so he became the father of Isaac uh, and circumcised him on the eighth day as Isaac did Jacob and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. 
and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery in Egypt. But God was with him. God was with Joseph and rescued him from all his afflictions. He granted him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh. The king of Egypt, who put him in charge of, of Egypt and of his entire household. Then a famine and a great affliction struck all Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out ancestors. <clears throat> he sent our ancestors there a first time. The second time, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent his father Jacob, inviting him and his whole clan, 75 persons. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he and his ancestor died there, and were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor at Shechem. This is a long story, I know, but it's important in a way. When time drew near for the fulfillment of the promise that God pledged to Abraham, the people had increased and become very numerous in Egypt, until another king who knew nothing of Joseph came to power in Egypt. He dealt shrewdly with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to oppose their infants and they might not that they might not survive. Exposed, not imposed. Yeah. At this time, Moses was born, and he was extremely beautiful. Aren't all babies beautiful? <laughs> For three months he was nursed in his father's house, but when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as his own son. Moses was educated in the wisdom of all of the Egyptians and was powerful in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, Moses decided to visit his kinsfolk, the Israelites. When he saw one of them treated unjustly, he defended and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptians. He assumed his kinsfolk, he assumed uh, his kinsfolk would understand that God was offering them deliverance through him but they did not understand. The next day he appeared to them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you harming one another? And then one who was harming his uh, neighbor pushed him aside, saying, Who appointed you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Moses fled when he heard this and settled in an alien, as an alien in, in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Forty years later, an angel appeared to him in the desert near Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look at it, the voice of the Lord came, 
I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And then Moses, trembling, did not dare to look at it. But the Lord said to him, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have witnesses I have witnessed the affliction of my people in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom you had rejected with the words, who appointed you ruler and judge? God sent as both ruler and deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the desert for 40 years. It was this Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you from among your kinsfolk a prophet like me. Remember we talked about that last week? A prophet like me. This is something that was... uh, mentioned last week here, of course, a prophet like Moses. All right. It was he who, in the assembly of the desert, was with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our ancestors he received living utterances to hand on to us. I'm going to skip over some of this because most of you know all of this. I want to get to the point here. Verse 42, then God turned and handed them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? No, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, uh, the fan the images that you made to worship, so I shall take you into exile beyond Babylon, and so up and so so forth. Uh, Again, uh, I want to get to the end of this. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always oppose the Holy Spirit. You are just like your ancestors. Which of the prophets did you, did your ancestors not persecute? They put to death those who foretold the coming uh, of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law as transmitted by angels, but did not observe it. When the Sanhedrin heard this, they were infuriated and ground their teeth at him. But he, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked up intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out in a voice, covered their ears and rushed upon him together. They threw him out of the city and began to stone him. The witnesses laid down their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, 
he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell to his knees and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep, of course, dead. Did you notice how often the word the Holy Spirit was mentioned in all of this? That is the appeal that Stephen made knowing that these people were uh, intent on doing him serious harm even to the point of death. But when the Holy Spirit is with him or with us if we are in serious trouble of any kind. Just in looking for a right word sometimes to utter to a person in response to something that we disapprove of or disagree with, we should always think about appealing to the Holy Spirit for a word of message uh, that will benefit the individual, not anger them, but hopefully give them reason to think. I want to be careful of our time period. The story of Philip and the Ethiopian. This is kind of interesting too and not as gruesome. Uh, This is uh, chapter 8, verse 26. Now, Philip, in this case, is one of those seven deacons that we had talked about earlier. He is not one of the apostles because there was an apostle named Philip. This is a different Philip. Then the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and head south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, the desert group. And so Philip got up and set out. Now there was an Ethiopian a eunuch, a court official of the of, uh, court official of Candace, that is the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury, something like Joseph was way back in uh, the time of Moses, who had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Apparently, this is an Ethiopian who had become a Jew. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go and join up with the chariot. And Philip ran and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he replied, how can I? Uh, unless somebody instructs me. So he invited Philip to get in and sit with him. And this is the scripture passage he was reading. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will tell of his posterity for his life is taken from the earth that's a quotation from the 
uh, Isaiah chapter 53, which is often called the uh, story of the suffering servant. And you will hear that on Good Friday uh, in all of the church services here. The eunuch said to uh, Philip in reply, I beg you, about whom is this prophet saying this, about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and, beginning with this scripture passage, he proclaimed Jesus to him. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's water. What is it to prevent uh, my being baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop, and Philip and the eunuch both went down into the water, and he baptized him. Philip baptized the eunuch. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but continued on his way rejoicing. Philip came, came to Azotus and uh, went about proclaiming the good news to all the towns until he reached Caesarea. An interesting story, but you see the Holy Spirit in this time period was really working overtime. Okay. Um, but that is how the church really got started. And if you recall on the uh, diagram of, that I gave you last week or the week before, uh, Christianity spread greatly throughout the Mediterranean area uh, during the first century. But for a long time, it was just basic belief in who Jesus Christ was. Because it wasn't until after, <coughs> excuse me, after the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, which virtually destroyed Judaism, or at least the structure of Judaism, uh, did the church separate itself and become distinct in its own way and structure. Um, and also, because there were no writings up until the late 50s or 60s, after Paul's letters, the Gospels, most of the Gospels were not written until after 70 AD. Uh, and even if they were, the distribution of them, because of having to be copied and handwritten, uh, would have taken a long time. So it wasn't really until almost the end of the century that any formality crept into uh, the, form, the form of worship. There was no such thing as a mass in the way we have it today. The breaking of the bread ceremony was by anyone who was a sincere believer. But it wasn't until after Paul's letters uh, and some theologians, particularly Irenaeus, that began to realize that there was a great deal more to the breaking of the bread ceremony than had been thought or understood. And so gradually, 
it was removed from the uh, common dinner table uh, to a separate ceremony, and then gradually, over a period of time, was it recognized as something far more important even than that. And uh, it gradually crept into what we have today, the format of reading some scriptures from the Old Testament, some from the New Testament, and the breaking of the bread and the communion all together. I think many of you will remember that before Vatican II, we often would say, well, I went to Mass and Communion. You remember that? It was a, just a, a very common statement. You were, in essence, separating the Mass from the Communion part. And as long as you went to Communion, you fulfilled the obligation. Well, Vatican II decidedly changed that and said the entire Mass is the Holy Eucharist. And without communion, it is not a Mass. All right. Okay. I know we covered a lot of detail. I don't even know what time it is here. Oh, I got one minute. I mean, after. <laughs> Any other questions? Any quick questions? All right. Now, next week, it would be natural for you to think. Well, we're going to take up the story of Paul's conversion. I want to let that go uh, because I want to do more work uh, on the teachings of Peter. So I would like you to read uh, Peter's two letters. They're relatively short, so you shouldn't have too much trouble in reading them. But we're going to talk about Peter in many different ways things probably that you may not have thought about before. Later, we will do the same thing on Paul. Uh, it's better, you know, if you bring all of that together at one time rather than this piecemeal stuff, which I don't particularly like. Okay. So, just because we're skipping over chapter 9 for now, it doesn't mean that you know, we're just going to forget about it. We will pick that up uh, in a couple of weeks. All right? Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessings on all of our efforts. Help us to understand not only what the scriptures are saying, but the details behind that. What it truly means uh, in depth. Help us then to open our minds and our hearts to accept what we're learning and live by it. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.